We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I'm Michael. Welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each episode we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Magnolia, the 1999 film written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Calleras. Hi. Okay, so I'm excited to talk about this movie. This movie, when I saw it, was it was kind of in that era of I'm starting to see movies that I was not allowed to see when I was, you know, the, you know, less than when they came out. I was too young to watch them, right? Okay, and so later in life, you're not of legal age to watch these rated R movies. Yes, mm, yeah. and so against the law. End of high school, early college. It was like starting to see these movies that I'd heard about but hadn't gotten to see. And this was one of those that I remember renting it and sitting down to watch it with like two of my friends. And we like weren't sure what it was going to be like, but we're going to watch this Magnolia. And then having my mind completely blown because it was unlike any other movie that I'd ever seen. And I didn't know that film could do the things that this movie does. It has this insane momentum, this like relentless, aggressive momentum and the soundtrack and the camera and the performances and everything it just goes and goes and doesn't stop so there are just so many things that blew me away and i was like this is amazing i didn't know cinema could be this way and so for a long time i've regarded it as one of my favorite pta films and a movie that i like think very very highly about haven't seen it in a really long time so re-watching it for the podcast Ultimately, I was a little disappointed. Like, I think some of the the, the rose-colored glasses of my youth had, like, had gone away, and I was watching it this time, and kind of, I was never bored, but I did feel the indulgence in a way where, when I was younger, I was like, this is amazing that someone could do something this indulgent and, like, have it be awesome. Like, I could do that. I want to do... This time, I was like, oh, this was... <laughs> This is a lot. It's a little, <laughs> a little melodramatic. It's a, it's a little, it's a little much. Overall, I still enjoyed it, but the the flaws and the bumps were much more apparent to me. And whereas before, as a youth, I was like, "How could anyone see any flaws in this movie?" I no longer feel that way. Uh, but there's lots of really interesting things to talk about in this film that does kind of feel like a miracle that it exists and shouldn't exist. And probably nothing like it will ever quite uh, exist again. So those are my thoughts on Magnolia. Brian, I'm curious to hear from you. What's your relationship with this film? Yeah, you know, I was thinking like, I was thinking of just my college years where I was the movie guy. Like I literally had a uh, drawer 
filled with VHSs like under my sock drawer. So then like on Saturday nights, people on the floor come over and be like, hey, can I borrow a movie? Sure. Like take, you know, open up, like opening up your trench coat in a parking lot or something, right? Like, like what, what, what do you got? I got them all. Um, and to reveal things you're selling, by the way, is why you'd be over there. Yeah. Right. Um, gotcha. yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so people would come over and they'd watch movies. And then, of course, my thing was if someone came to visit or something like that, I'd be like, oh, have you seen Being John Malkovich? No, come on, like step this way. You know, and like it was always my thing. <laughs> so then one night I'm hanging out with my friend Nikki and she says, have you seen Magnolia? And I said, no. And she said, oh, dude. How have you not seen Magnolia of all people? And I was like, I don't know. And she said, all right. So she goes and she gets the the double VHS, right? And we put it in and <laughs> wow. we wow. sat there for three hours and eight minutes and watched Magnolia. And boy, I hated it. Um, <laughs> it was just like, this movie feels so much and self-indulgent and... It, there's a lot going evil. The actors' names are even long. Like there's, you know, it's everyone's got three names. Um, there's, there's just so much going on, and that sort of tainted my, I think, PTA feelings forever, basically. Um, and there are movies of his I like. There are movies I don't. We've talked about them on the podcast, but it's always sort of this like, yeah, but you're the Magnolia guy. Um, so for that reason, <laughs> I have not seen this movie until again until this past week um, and I had been actually really excited to rewatch it you know and talk about it with you guys um, and uh, first third of the movie I was going yep hate this movie and then by the time the credits rolled I have I have evolved to I dislike this movie wow. so that's, <laughs> that's been my my character arc over the last 20 years you've grown there, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. It's something I've always said about PTA, especially with like Boogie Nights and um, There Will Be Blood, where I'm just like, man, you're so good at what you do. I, But it's like so much of it is not for me, you know, and Magnolia is like probably the best example of both ends of that spectrum of just like, wow, you're doing some stuff that is just expert filmmaking here. And then you're doing stuff that just drives me bananas, you know? Um, and uh, so we'll get into all of that. And I have like some specific reasons why I feel the way I do, but, uh, but that is my, my overall thoughts on Magnolia. Yeah. Interesting. Fair. Okay. Trisha, what about you? Yeah. I don't remember when I first saw this. Uh, it, I think it was after I saw Boogie Nights. So I was, and I really love Boogie Nights. I liked it when I first saw it. I really, really still like it now. Um, and so I was probably inclined to really like Magnolia as well. And I do. PTA generally is a director that I like um, and think is excellent and and all of these things. And And I am overall very impressed by everything that he does, including this film. And I think it's it's a fascinating example. I love movies that take big swings like this, especially in terms of theme. You know, this is one of those movies that people write essays about forever. <laughs> there are so many. Everyone wants to, to have their interpretation of Magnolia and like comb through it for clues about what it all means and... Um, I like that. I think it's cool to take, you know, what's essentially a drama, like a sprawling drama with supernatural elements. Take that and just make it like dense as hell and 
really, it really feels like it's about things and it feels like a movie that is full of clues and like is kind of its own little puzzle box about you could just if you can just like watch the kid rapping at the beginning with the sat with the subtitles on and then like he's giving you all the clues you can put it together um i saw a review that referenced ulysses uh Mm. as a, a point for this and it very much feels like that where it's like if you just study it hard enough <laughs> it's gonna be a literary masterwork right you know despite being uh, by all accounts difficult which i think both of these things are <laughs> so anyway uh i really like magnolia i can't wait to get into it with you guys um i think i read a recent re- i say recent like i think in the last five ten years interview with pta where he said you know Basically, Magnolia is his, is his masterpiece in his mind, but also he would probably cut 20 minutes out of it if he made it today. <laughs> and uh, uh, I think it's okay for both of those things to be true at once. So anyway, yeah. let's go. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. Uh, Alex. Uh, we can just bring it full circle and just say basically ditto what Michael said. It was the exact same journey for me of seeing it in that film school magic moment and just you know, basically it was all about the directing. The directing is just so, it's one of those movies where like people, you know, you, you nominate a movie for visual effects that is like the flashy, the flashiest visual effects because you can see them, you know, as opposed to a movie where they're like hidden. Mm -hmm. This movie, like, you know, a director was making this movie and somebody (laughs) was directing. And I think for me as an aspiring director, it was just so exciting to see, like such gusto uh, on screen where the raw audacity of this movie to just be go, 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 going like so aggressively and yet so well planned to have these transitions and this momentum that just keeps flowing through these disparate scenes. Even the opening is just like this insane, like announcement of like how big this movie is going to be where it's like that you cast all these extras for like a five second shot of some like giant dinner party to have an aside about this thing from like 1920. Like, <laughs> like that's how big this movie is right from the get go. And I think yeah. just the audacity of that was so thrilling as a young filmmaker. And it is still like nuts to see like, like this movie is about just like some random people in San Fernando Valley. <laughs> and, and it has this like scope and, and boldness to it. That is just insane. So, yeah, I, I'm also with Michael in that it does not quite live up to that memory now. And it does feel, you know, there's some speeches in this movie that feel like not as amazing writing as I remember. Um, but it is still it is still fun to watch these actors do these almost like stage play, like oh, melodramatic performances in these long takes. It, it is there is a pleasure in that. And I think it is fun to watch an indulgent movie once in a while if it is pulled off with so much flair and style and gusto. So I still really enjoyed watching it, but it it didn't feel yeah like a perfect masterpiece like I remembered. Yeah. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? 
Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Okay, well, yeah, so let's dive in. And so the the PTA-ness of all of it and the directing, as you're talking about, Alex, something I, like, one of the first notes I wrote down while watching this was just Wes Anderson and how Mm. similar, I think, this era PTA style is to Wes Anderson while being kind of like, like it's dark inversion in some Mm. ways where, you know, if Wes Anderson is like lots of really stilted, perfectly symmetrical shots with occasional camera moves that punctuate a thing. PTA is basically the opposite that feels like in this film where it's like the camera is like careening down the dolly track as <laughs> quickly cocaine. as it possibly yeah. can yeah. on yeah. cocaine. To land on a tiny object at the end of the track right. like, and just yeah. barely rack focus to hit it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's punctuated then with like still moments like in that opening, you know, one is the loneliest number montage where we're meeting all the characters. There's so much kineticism until we get to the gym character, the, the police officer, where then suddenly there's no camera movements. It's just like locked down shots and that juxtaposition is used to make a point. And kind of similarly, you know, Wes Anderson films have performances that are like extremely understated to the point where it's almost like you're you're searching for the affect uh, in every single frame. This film is completely the opposite. Like Julianne Moore is <laughs> Julianne Moore, emotion baby. at you. <laughs> it's so big, uh, which was also kind of annoying this time. I was like, didn't remember as much. Anyways, there's just all these things. It, like, it feels sort of like you were saying, it's so you're so aware that you're watching a movie and that like each shot is like crafted and kind of performative for the camera and almost looking out like the, you know, the fourth wall kind of thing, similar to a Wes Anderson film, but totally different. And so that was just an interesting feeling I got watching at this time. Yeah. You know, and this kind of brings me to my, I was thinking about the style and kind of the tone of the movie and the inconsistency of it within the within itself and i think that was the thing that i was that that was like tracking as i was watching because you know we've talked about from kind of late 80s to the early aughts we have this like tim burton tarantino pta wes anderson edgar wright alfonso Cuarón, like people who are like they announce themselves they show up and they're like this is how i make movies and everyone's like holy crap like um and then those people have like changed how they make movies since or they've really dug into that or whatever And I was thinking, you know, for the most part, most of those filmmakers, like the Coen brothers, it's like when they make a movie, the movie is consistent throughout. So like a Wes Anderson movie feels like a Wes Anderson movie throughout. Blood Simple doesn't feel anything like Raising Arizona, but Blood Simple feels like Blood Simple the whole way through and Raising Arizona feels like Raising Arizona the whole way through. Um, And I would say the same for uh, Phantom Thread and... Boogie Nights and Inherent yeah. Vice. Like they all feel like this is this is the one movie I'm making. And Magnolia, I was tracking, like it starts out with this like Moulin Rouge kind of energy, like, mm-hmm. specifically in the prologue where it's like cameras whipping all over the place. Everything's going crazy. Look at this, like coincidence, right? Um, and then, then like once the movie actually starts, it's kind of Boogie Nights, Scorsese kind of energy of like, we're not going to hang out with these characters for too long and the camera's always moving and there's like wild music playing and it's kind of jazzy and it's frenetic. It's not as crazy as the intro, but it's still pretty crazy. And then like 30 minutes in the movie goes, but now let's relax and let's be a normal movie for like an hour and a half, right? Where we're just going to have characters doing character things and having dramatic scenes. It's still going to be 
Tom Cruise giving his speeches and everything. You know what I mean? Like there's, it's still going to be kind of out there and comedic, but it largely goes, let's kind of be a, a melodrama, kind of a straight melodrama for a while. And then there's a sing-along where people are like all <laughs> singing the same song. And I'm like, wait a minute. Tonally, that feels right for this moment. But stylistically, that feels like you just changed what movie you were being for the last hour. And then it comes back in and everyone's got their dramatic moments and stuff. And then frogs happen. And then the <laughs> and then it's like bookended with this other ending about coincidence, which the movie's not really about. So like it, it's it's just sort of like stylistically keeps changing its mind a lot of the way. And I felt that more frustrating than a movie that's just always being the movie that it's like tells me it's going to be at the beginning. Um, so I think there's other uneven stuff that bothers me that, that we'll get into later. But that was the first thing that I was noticing of just like this this movie keeps changing its mind for the first hour until it kind of settles into what it's going to be. And then the last half hour is like, now we're going to kind of get weird again in, in varying ways. I, I will say that when I think back to what was so thrilling about this movie when I first saw it, there was something about how it was like a feeling movie. Like it mm -hmm. wasn't like a Wes Anderson movie where it's like, aha, like you've chosen a style and it is consistent and precise. It was like this movie is going to have like movements, almost like a symphony or something. These kind of sequences that are just like writing a feeling until it like exhausts itself and explodes. And then we're going to like go to a different feeling and just ride that feeling for a while. And I think there was something almost intuitive about the movie that I clicked into that was just like, yeah, there are no rules. It's just like feels, man. It's just you're just feeling <laughs> shit. Like we're just riding this wave. And I, and I think there was something thrilling about that where a movie wasn't, yeah, it wasn't confined to any particular rules besides like just raw emotion and just raw emotional energy kind of like either spinning out of control or like crashing and like coming to a stop and coming to like a stillness for a while. Um, not that that's like, you know, good or bad, but that good. was, that was part of, that was part of the, the thrill for me actually first the watching ride. it was just like, yeah, the realizing that this movie was operating by its own rules and its own rules were kind of like no rules. It was like a emotion. It was emotion based rules, not like mind based rules. Mm -hmm. um, and it just yeah. it just felt like pure emotion the whole time, like Moulin Rouge, which I also loved, you know, and still love. <laughs> I basically agree, Alex. And I think that there's something um, consistent about it in terms of sort of theme and approach that sort of guides that those intuitive shifts that you're describing that I also clicked into right away. And so I think the thing about the prologue is that it announces the prologue and then that goes into the opening sequence with one is the loneliest number and where we're cutting and meeting all the characters. Both of those sequences announce that this movie is what I was talking about at the top, like a little bit of a thematic puzzle, um, a story, if you will, right? Like the whole opening prologue is, we're going to tell you three stories. The thing that unites them is this idea about like things that happen that are unexplainable. I guess they talk about it being as coincidence, but but really it's within the framework of like, what do we do with unexplained events, right? Is there someone controlling them? Is there something that they mean, right? Did, what is the meaning that is can be constructed out of 
standing these events in a line, um, which again is what storytelling is. Um, and so the movie is announcing itself as being about something thematically, like we're going to tell you a story that is the theme of this. It is about strange events that affect people's lives in profound ways. Um, and get ready and hold on tight. And then it gives you the people that are all the players that are going to be involved. And so I think that because of the fact that it's like, I guess you could frame it as or think of it as being like a theme forward movie, which I really feel it is. Now, mm-hmm. it's not clean <laughs> in terms of its <laughs> theme. It's not distillable down into like one sentence. Um, but again, it's not trying to be you're here for, you know, an action sequence or whatever. It's not trying to be a genre movie. It's trying to be a theme movie. And so I think for that reason, there's something that I was able to get on the wavelength of as well, where I'm like, okay, how does this scene of the the quiz kid arriving to the studio and we're following him through this thing and we're seeing everything about the way that he's being treated, the way that he's thinking about things. What is this particular sequence have to do with overall the thematic conversation that's evolving as the movie unfolds. And so to your point, Alex, I don't care if each sequence is kind of unto itself because the very act of them being stood in a line grouped together and put in this movie is the thing I'm here for, right? It is the experience of, of watching what this story is going to be on. Yeah. I guess you could say thematic level. And, and I do feel like, yeah, within those kind of sequences, there is a consistency to the style. Like I think there is a, you know, there's usually a, like a musical build that is continuing across all the different stories. They're all moving forth at the same pace. And so I think, yeah, each of those sequences is, is kind of, doing a shared story amongst all these people about unraveling or about whatever. And then that, that sequence ends and we move on to the next kind of shared experience of all these people. Yeah. And the movie that this really reminds me of, and this was referenced quite a bit uh, by reviewers at the time, critics, even critics who didn't like it um, is shortcuts and other films by Robert Altman. Um, And the Altman influence I think is really clear here Um, not just in the approach to like, here are some interconnected stories, but also into the, like, again, yeah, this idea of like, I'm, but I'm putting together vignettes almost. And, you know, in the case of Magnolia, they're being intercut, which is sometimes the case in Altman movies, but like in the movie shortcuts, at least to my recollection, I haven't seen it in a while. They really are like, we're going to tell this story, then we're going to tell this story. And some of the characters are going to come through and overlap, but we're really kind of telling these different things. I think that there's that sense of like, these objects are disparate. And by grouping them, here's what I want you to think about is like the group itself. And Yeah. I think there's something like you were saying kind of in the, in the intro, Alex, where the, the grouping of them doesn't feel arbitrary like it feels intentional and we should also say there's a really intense like making of doc that i had on the dvd that i watched forever ago and then forgot and then i'm like 
found it on YouTube. So you can find it on YouTube. Magnolia Making Up, you'll find it. And I sped through some of it. And I want to talk about that more. One of the things that is in that, though, is, is PTA talking to the DP. And the DP's like, so we're kind of going for different styles for each of these things. And he was like, no, 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 this is one story. We want this to have like one style, one story, blah, blah, blah. So that was his intention, at least, with with it. And you sort of hear PTA talking about how challenging this is going to be to direct because it has all these interweaving aspects, but it seemed like he was conceiving of it and in a single as a single story. And I think there are it, it is interesting that this film has these kind of different entry points. And so like Trisha, you're talking about like theme and uh you know Alex just like the directing. There are a lot of like aesthetic layers happening. For me it's you know the beginning of the one is the loneliest number sequence. The first shot is Julianne Moore is on the phone and it's a, it's a, a shot where you're just in the living room and you just dolly in aggressively forward. She's not in the frame at first. She steps into the frame to say a line and then it whips her hair and then leaves immediately. <laughs> and so it's like, it's a shot about dollying intensely to a point where someone's like just turning on their heel and go going the other way. Like there's so much like for a movie to start like that and announce like, this is how we're going to be shooting these scenes. There's something about that that really like sucks me in. And so I feel like whatever that is does continue throughout the movie, but it's not uh, something that is overtly cohesive, uh, I think. <laughs> sure. I, yeah, I think there, there's definitely a cohesion between when we go from scene to scene, whether it's like this is a more dramatic, you know, story, character story, or this is a more kind of fun character story or whatever. And it's it's sort of the, you know, in that first 20 minutes, William H. Macy crashes his car into a window <laughs> yeah. and then someone just runs over to the car and right. goes, quiz kid, Donnie Smith, you know? And I was right. like, oh, okay, so this is a cartoon. Like we're watching a cartoon, right? right. But then it's right. the same movie where we have these like really intimate, <laughs> right. you know, sad monologues and stuff. That struck me on this viewing, that moment. Right. I was like, wait, really? <laughs> right. So, so, so again, it's like the first 20 minutes of telling you it's going to be this kind of, like Punch Drunk Love in two minutes is like, it's going to be this kind of movie. And then it's absolutely that kind of movie. Uh, Magnolia is like, it's going to be this kind of movie maybe not um but no absolutely within i never feel like i'm i'm changing gears as we go from character story to character story uh one of our patrons carlos said could there be such thing as a, a collective character arc you know and it feels like this movie um and I think, you know, I'd be curious, I was thinking about Love Actually and other movies where where you have, you're following a bunch of stories and it's like, you're you're seeing all the characters kind of have their midpoint at the same time and have their crisis at the same time, you know? And of course here, it's like the, the characters all sing together and all realize they have to wise up and go into the third act. And then they're all kind of prepped to go into the third act. I feel like the movie itself changes tones as it's going, but I feel like at any given moment, all of those scenes feel like they're all speaking to each other and 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 kind of being one collective character. And I think that part works really well. And, you know, and I think part of why I love this movie, we mentioned Moulin Rouge before, and I feel like the same like spirit and energy of like that era of Baz Luhrmann. Something that musicals can do is just transcend reason, transcend mm -hmm. like story logic. You can you can kind of like jump the shark and or, or just kind of like explain a lot through one song and just like 
fast forward emotionally. And this movie feels like a musical in that way sometimes where it's like the performances are too big and the speech is too grand and it feels musical in that way. And, and I think that's why I love in this movie when there's a sing along because it feels in the spirit of, of the, of the bigness of this movie. And that feels like I want, this is the part of the musical where the whole cast sings like this kind of bittersweet song together. And, and I, I, there's something about it that feels very consistent for me with the musicalness of the whole thing. And, uh, you know, the music is a huge part of this movie. You know, one yes. of the fun things to talk about with, with Punch Drunk Love was us talking about sound and sound design and mm. how that was like the movie that they played in college to teach us like, look, sound matters. Look what sound does. Right. So I was paying attention to sound in, in this movie, which is also incredible. The way they use music is really interesting. And some of the time it feels like the music is there to just force you to keep paying attention and to just keep tying all these things together and keep the momentum up because we're going to be going through these like nine different characters constantly. And the music is there telling your brain this is all part of the same sequence like this music is happening and it is cohesive little trick for video essays out there also that we would do in lessons from the screenplay is all the section that is of a piece put the same musical track there and subconsciously it signals to people that this is all connected uh but it's not only like doing that there are often times where there's multiple songs playing and there's multiple dialogue tracks on top of each other again kind of thinking about the one is the loneliest number sequence because that's where it's the most bold but it's like one is the loneliest number we got amy mann singing we got william h macy listening to music in his car that has vocals we have like a voiceover like all of those things playing on top of each other it's just like almost gets to a cacophony but all of that is orchestrated such to keep that momentum going and build those dynamics and connective tissue and then I think it was sort of like midpoint or kind of coming up to the crisis. The music suddenly like stops and there's no yes. music for like 20 minutes or 15 minutes or however long of you know, time is relative. Well, in this that, that's following the sequence where, you know, Tom Cruise is being interviewed and, and we're intercutting. And that's just like just total like just nonstop tension build like poor kid has to pee like everybody is like in a state of tension and the music is just like this driving consistent tension music that just doesn't stop for like like 15 minutes it feels like right and then when it does it's like oh well now i'm paying attention because wait a minute there's no music so yeah really interesting use yeah and this goes back to it's doing um like tonal work right? As you guys are pointing out, um, where it's signaling to you that this is a united sequence. Think of all of these, you know, this 15, 20 minutes as a sequence together, um, cause they are all united by one musical track or a musical idea. But the music is one of the other devices that the movie uses for structure, which I think is really interesting. I was paying attention to the structure this time, kind of thinking about the collective character art question that we got on Patreon, but also just thinking about like, how do I orient myself to know where I am in this movie in terms of plot? <laughs> Question mark. Uh, <laughs> plot's a funny word <laughs> to use for Magnolia. Um, Frogs and, now. <laughs> right. And I was thinking that the music helps do that. 
But also there are very clear structural elements that have been inserted into the movie to clue you in and help keep you grounded and oriented in the structure of it. Um, and so I was thinking this time around, not just the title cards, although those are really interesting where it says, you know, like 80% chance of rain and um, the fact that the weather kind of goes through these different like sequences itself where it's like here it's not raining yet. Here it's pouring rain. Here it's kind of cleared up. It's a light drizzle. Like those things. The title cards also remind you that the weather is important, which I think is you know, obviously doing setup work. But then I was thinking about the structure of the game show this time. And, you know, I paid attention to when Philip Baker Hall, uh, who plays Jimmy Gator, um, goes, and that's the end of round one, folks. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, okay, well, we're one hour into it, like here, or 45 <laughs> minutes or whatever it is. Like, here we are. We're going to go into the second act now. Um, and there are very clear things that uh, PTA is doing to be like, okay, we are, we've concluded this chapter here. We are going to move on to the next chapter. So hold what I just told you as like the first half of act two. And now we're going to move into the second half of act two and whatever, those kinds of things. Even though we don't know where it's going exactly other than a weather phenomenon is coming. <laughs> um, cause the title cards are, are cluing us into that. Um, there's still a sense of, uh, I guess what you guys are saying, like build toward a definite point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so noticing that also thinking about the, the game show specifically and, and why, why don't you get bored in this movie? Mm. And there are these kind of like mini like events happening and the game show I think does a lot, just kind of just the, implicit things that come with a live taping of a game show for television, right? So you get a lot of stakes out of that of just like, it's a live thing. And so like, there's tension Why there. Why would it be? Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought about yeah. that this time. I was like, what game show? It's like 4 p.m. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, right, right. We're taping it live. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, Paul, uh, one of his, Paul Thomas Anderson's early careers was doing uh, like an assistant on a kid's mm. game show like mm. that. And so that was sort of just like, I'm sure it that. wasn't live. Just <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you're right. You're right about the tension. Yeah. And just, you know, who's going to win? Who's gonna, like all those things that kind of come bundled with that. It's yeah. useful. Yeah. Thinking about also this movie in it's like bigness. Paul Tom Sanderson is, is obviously interested in exploring extreme characters. Like that's kind of true for all of his movies. Just people who, you know, at, at least some characters in most of his films are extreme in some way. And I, and I think what I like about his version of exploring extreme characters is he getting to something honest behind that extremity. So like think about Tom Cruise's character, Frank TJ Mackey. So Best it's, name. it's, it's the most, <laughs> the most extreme satire of, you know, it wasn't called this at the time, but you know, whatever men's rights or whatever this A pickup artist. Yeah. Pickup artist. Yeah. This thing is, um, to the point where like his, you know, the, the long take of his presentation is like hilarious. Like when the, when the banner falls down with the logo and you see the, the, the art, it's just, it's just amazing. Like every detail they, they did just to amp up the kind of like absurdity, but also like the deep commitment that, you know, Tom Cruise has for that character and the, the character has for their speech or whatever. This movie is an interesting showcase of like 
a lot of characters that like could fall apart into caricature and maybe the Julianne Moore character kind of does. Um, but for example, Claudia, um, like that's a character uh, that, that feels at first, like she just, she almost feels like too extreme, too much. Like, is this really like a full character here? And then her story is actually one of the most interesting and the most revealing by the end of the, by the end of the movie. So I don't know how that ties in with everything else we're saying, but I think just thinking about how everything in his movies are big, it's also big with like truth inside and, and some kind of authenticity and some reality beneath the bigness, um, which I think is, is interesting about Magnolia. And and I would say a lot of characters are hiding their true selves under their bigness. Right. You know, and I would say that's, that's true of Jim. That's true of Claudia. Um, Don't know if it's true of Linda, of Julianne Moore, and maybe that's why she feels a little, a little more off, but it's obviously most true of Frank, TJ Mackey, right? So Mm -hmm. it's kind of like these characters who feel, they, they feel a little melodramatic and over the top at first, but then as you, as you're pointing out, Alex, as you get to know them, you're like, oh, that was either a facade you were putting on for yourself or like in Claudia's case, this is sort of a coping mechanism that you're sort of like, you're trying to fend off reality. So you're kind of like constantly keep the music loud, keep talking, keep doing everything, right. you know? And I think that, um, that I don't know if it's completely consistent, but it feels like a lot of the time that bigness is, is there for a reason that the characters themselves are actually projecting forward. Yes. Yeah. I was thinking too, this time around about the time compression and what you get from setting it all in one day in a few hours. And, Mm. you know, the live taping is part of that, but then also, um, you know, it starts off on basically everyone's most significant day. I think I remember a screenwriting professor being like, Every movie should be about the worst or most significant day in your character's life. And this movie is that. Like, <laughs> yeah. this is the worst day in everybody's life. <laughs> or just the most just the most impactful, important day in everybody's life. But it, it starts off with characters that are already teetering on the brink of crisis, right? Like, Earl Partridge is already dying. He's probably mm-hmm. going to die today. So everyone surrounding him it's going to be a significant day in their life. It's going to be a significant day in Linda's life. Maybe the worst day in her life. Maybe the toughest day uh, at Philip Seymour Hoffman's job. What's his name? Parma? Phil Phil Parma, Parma, which is just an H removed from Pill Pharma because he's the nurse. (laughs) Pill Pharma. (laughs) But, you know, you have have, uh, Jimmy Gator comes by to see Claudia and... He tells her that he's dying and he's got a game show to tape, but he has this secret where he knows there's this crisis going on in his life and he's trying to reconnect with his daughter and um, that he hasn't spoken to in years. And so there's all of these things that are already, you know, within the first five, ten minutes of the movie, we know that these characters are on the brink of crisis. And by refusing to let them get out of it with the luxury of time, right? Mm. They don't have the time to get out of it. It's all going to keep piling up and piling on. Even the Stanley character in the game show, they're going for the record, right? Like it's, it's a significant day in all of their lives. They have to win this game show, even though they've been winning and winning, but this is the one the dad's putting the pressure on. It's like, there's all of this stuff that's kind of built into the construction of the day 
and the time compression that gets you to these melodramatic moments that almost holds them together. They still feel huge and big, but you're kind of like, well, people go through crisis and sometimes crisis looks like this. Like even when Julianne, you know, the classic scene where Julianne Moore is yelling at the poor pharmacist, which the pharmacist is terrible at his job. He does. He's he's not a poor, he's not a poor (laughs) pharmacist. Yeah. He's the worst. Yeah. He (laughs) definitely need to not say anything, but Um, And she holds it together actually quite admirably for all of the judgment that she's getting. But when she explodes at the pharmacist, there's an earnedness to that because we've seen the pressure that she's under and she's trying to keep it tamped down. And yes, it is big and huge, but that's what dramas are. And so picking a day of crisis and then not letting the characters escape from it ever they're going to have to be in the crisis until the crisis passes or until it builds to its inevitable, you know, explosion. That's what drama is. And that's why I think this movie ultimately works. It's also just kind of fun to get to see a movie that lets its actors be a little unhinged and, and go this big. You know, I think it's it's not appropriate in a lot of just straight up modern dramas. And it almost harkens back to the days of melodrama. And it, who's it? Douglas Sirk, like you know, the movies that are just like big, you know, emotion movies. We don't really do that much anymore. And, and it's thought of as being, you know, kind of embarrassing it's embarrassing to be right. this big and open and emotional so there's something just kind of cathartic and fun about getting to see julianne moore just really <laughs> just go for it you know even if it doesn't quite work she's just she's just gonna go all the way just put all of all of her most manic energy into this character and just do it yeah. and it's fun that this movie is kind of a container in which it feels like it fits because a lot of movies it, it wouldn't fit yeah it's interesting thinking about yeah, like why why that character doesn't feel as like there's as much depth to it as some of the other characters. And I think yeah. like something that's interesting about the Claudia character, which we were talking about, so like the daughter of like Jimmy Gator, right? That's mm-hmm. where, you know, watching it this time, I was like, okay, this is a lot. This is pretty big. But there's something about the context. You see her, you know, reacting to her father so strongly. There's something kind of implanted in the back of your head that's like, but I think there's like, maybe there's a reason for this. And by the end of the story, you know, because we're following Jimmy and and his what, like, because you have these other characters involved uh, sort of tangentially in her arc, you're filling in like exposition about who she is in these other in these other places so like one person's character arc is doing something for the jimmy character but it's also answering important backstory for the claudia character and i feel like there are a few instances in this film where that is happening there's like because with of earl. interconnected earl yeah yeah with earl, earl and frank, frank yeah. yeah right and again i think frank is surprisingly in some ways one of the most emotionally gripping like people and characters in this movie for me. I think Tom Cruise's performance is really good. Like there's just a lot to that character. Uh, But, and some of it's directly in the scenes, but some of it's indirectly coming from this connective tissue. And so I feel like the, like the Julianne Moore character feels 
more like an island than some of the yeah, others. Yeah, she doesn't have anybody to inform like why right. she is the way she is. Yeah. 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 Even the William H. Macy character, even yeah. though we don't know anything about him, because we see the quiz show and we see Stanley and Stanley's father, that's mm. kind of informing, like we're kind of seeing the cycle of like, this is who kind of Stanley grows up to be or could grow up to be. And it does add it doesn't form the way that we read the William H. Macy character in a way that, yeah, you're, yeah, that we just don't have anything really to go on with Julianne Moore. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that sort of makes me think about the, the thematic stuff going on in this movie. And it's the other, like I was saying up, up top with the tone, it's the other thing that feels sort of messy to me in this movie where I'm like, but what, what are you trying to talk about? And is it this or is it that? Or is it supposed to be multiple? Multi so again, we open with this idea of like coincidence and sort of like, look at these things, look at these crazy things that happen, right? Which funnily enough, none of those three things actually happened, but they were all like urban myths on the internet in the 90s. So like uh, just probably Paul Thomas Anderson read them and thought they were, he was like, well, if these crazy things can happen, then maybe my movie is believable. And it's like, well, they didn't. Um <laughs> close zoom in but it did happen um but then but then the movie's not about that it's about sort of regret and past trauma and in paul thomas anderson's words uh sort of tenuous parent-child relationships which obviously we have a lot of in this movie um but then it's like not all characters are dealing with either of those things some characters are dealing with one some characters are dealing with both and i feel like it's in an ensemble movie it's like either have all characters dealing with different versions of the same issue or all have characters dealing with different issues that are all thematically the same. But like this movie isn't about cheating, but we have three characters who deliver monologues about the regret they feel for cheating on their spouses. Right. Um, you know, we have parent child relationships, but Donnie it doesn't have that as part of his story. Jim doesn't have that as part of his story. Uh, Linda doesn't have that as part of her story. We have two quiz kid geniuses whose stories aren't related. We have two older men who are, you know, dying and are regretful of the way that they treated their children. It's like, do we need two of them? Right. right. So it just, it ultimately feels like uneven and like we have a lot of characters who are not all doing unique things and some of whom are not are doing things that aren't actually connected to the main thing. And I feel like if it was fewer characters in a shorter runtime, then we could like, as I feel like most of the time we talk about like, look at these strong thematic movies. It's like, you can point out to how every single character does exactly this thing and adds exactly this thing, this piece to the puzzle. And this character feels like there's a lot of ideas that then, are all interesting. And you know, like if this, I almost want this to be like a 10 episode series where it's like, here's the quiz show episode. Here's the, this episode, here's the, um, and then it's like each of those can kind of be its own thing. But then in the end you're like, Oh, they were all tied together in this thematic way or whatever. But here it just feels like there's just, there's a whole mess of themes and ideas that feel like they're from different ideas at different points in time. I was reading a little bit about how the, this movie came to be, and it really did begin in a very intuitive you know, Linda reminded Paul Thomas Anderson of somebody, somebody in his family, maybe his father's wife, or basically like there was like characters he just pulled from over here and then, you know, this from over here. And, he, you know, he worked on a game show for that over there. So it does seem like this was like a pastiche of things that didn't emerge from like 
the one idea, the one thematic core. And it's funny because I've been thinking about like I haven't loved a lot of PTA's recent movies. Like you know, I wasn't a huge fan of The Master. I wasn't a huge fan of Inherent Vice. And I was like, yeah, these movies feel like they're just kind of like wandering and like they're just kind of like things just happen and this and it's like back in the day like you know magnolia that movie was like all of a piece and watching it again I'm like oh wait a minute no he was always kind of this way where he, <laughs> he just kind of you know he has these inspirations coming from this way and that way and he's not too concerned with like stripping away the fat to get to like the clarity or the core it all kind of just stays in there um and i guess some of his movies do feel that way a little bit more like that's why i think Punch Frank Love and There Will Be Blood hold up the best to me because they both feel more stripped down and more like they are have a, have a strong core that drives them. Um, whereas the other movies I was mentioning and Magnolia feel like they're kind of a pastiche that kind of holds together, kind of doesn't. There is something about the messiness here that I respond to, which is not normal for me. Normally, <laughs> messy themes really annoy me. But there is something about this that I think that these slight variations that you're pointing out, Brian, where it's like Stanley and Donnie are, you know, connected and we see that they're, or we hear from Donnie that his parents stole his money. And we know that Stanley isn't a, a you know, his father is being very abusive and horrible to him. I, I forgot how horrible his dad it's was. Really bad. <laughs> really bad. Uh, yeah. The movie is drawing parallels, but they are not the same person. Right. Stanley is a very different kind of character than Donnie is. Definitely. Um, and Donnie is going through something totally different in his life. Um, <laughs> Wants braces for that bartender. Yeah. <laughs> in some ways, the Donnie character is like the most extreme to me. Where I'm just <laughs> no, totally. Like, Sir, like, everything about this. I mean, like the way you're down. giving this monologue at this bar. Yeah. <laughs> And it's also the much. other guy at the bar is also like, like is a, he? Yeah, he seems like a supernatural being. Yeah, he does feel like a supernatural he feels like, like a sprite. Brothersy, like yeah. his name is Thurston Howell, uh, according to the credits. Sure. Okay, sure. So the movie is drawing very clear parallels between those two characters, but in in some ways they're just variations on the theme, right? Like they're in similar positions, but they're responding differently, and the ways that they're responding differently kind of communicate communicate to us um kind of explore the situation that they're in from two different angles and so similarly like when you have these patriarch figures um with philip baker hall's character jimmy gator and then earl partridge who they're both dying they both have regrets about their relationships um and the way that they've been estranged from their children the movie is wanting you to notice that they're very similar, but mm -hmm. also that they are not the same. They're in different situations and they're handling what they're going through differently from each other. And that in itself can provide like, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a parallax or something, well, you know, where, where you're looking at something through one eye and then through this eye. Um, and so you're kind of seeing it slightly differently as you, as the movie um, presents you with two, uh, two things that are very much related, but not exactly the same. And so, I don't know, that kind of works for me. I don't think, I don't think the movie like draws a lot of clear conclusions about what any of it is or means the last shot of this movie is, uh, you know, um, Claudia looking directly into camera and smiling and you're just like, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
We all wised up. <laughs> we knew it was a movie all along. So I guess I'm not surprised yeah, that she right. can see the camera, I guess. Right. I mean, that's the least weird thing that this movie does. Like, <laughs> and I, sure. I say that, yeah, like. But it's still, sure. it's still striking that, yeah, you, you have a yeah. fourth wall break at this last moment. Yeah. And you can read all about, you know, as I mentioned, there are a, a zillion essays where you can read about all the references to like Exodus and the plague of frogs and the sins of the fathers visited upon the children and all of the other things that are in the text that are drawing attention to themselves, sure. um, which I, I think are all really interesting. But I think in this case, the movie isn't neat, but also isn't trying to be neater than it is. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting. I want to go to lessons, but to quickly, because I said I'd revisit it, the, the making of for this is just really fascinating because it's one of those behind the scenes documentaries that is kind of no holds barred, like fly on the wall about how difficult it is to make a movie. And I think it, if watching the film as a young filmmaker inspired you know, the the magic side of what film can be. Watching the behind the scenes also inspired the like, but film is really hard to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and because this thing, documentary does not shy away from like, it's really hard to work with kids. I'm, we're having to reshoot an entire day and you see everyone. It's like four o'clock in the morning and he's like having to apologize to the cast and crew because we're like having to redo this thing. And the way this was planned to work didn't work at all. It just like really goes into how long a movie like this takes to make, how many things can go wrong, how much miscommunication there can be, just all the things that that make film so hard. And so I think there's there's something interesting about having something as crazy and unique as this movie paired with a really honest take about the psychology of the people making it. And I, I think it's just a, it's an interesting pairing, much like the movie itself. I don't know exactly what the meaning is to take away from it, but it's, I highly recommend watching it. He talks about like how he knows the studios hates it. And like, no one cares. He, there's a part where he's like monologuing as the producer, giving him notes, like angry <laughs> notes to Fiona Apple, like Fiona Apple. Cause that's his girlfriend at the time is playing mm -hmm. him and he's playing like the producer and he's like, it's too long. Nobody cares. Nobody cares that she smiles at the end. Nobody knows what that means. Nobody cares. Like it's really interesting to watch the brain behind this film and this film. And just, I don't know. I think there's a lot, just a lot in this package of Magnolia. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why it is interesting to analyze and, and write innumerable essays about because it has enough there but the lack of clarity to, to suck you in and project what you might want to find in there. I'm going to go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Magnolia. Alex, do you want to start us off? Sure. Yeah, I was really struck this time by the Philip Seymour Hoffman character. Um, Phil, Phil Parma, I guess is his name. <laughs> I almost said Phil Parma. Um, but it's interesting because I think normally when we see kind of a healthcare worker or like a hospice worker portrayed in the movies, they're usually kind of like the more distant professional removed one. And you know, the, the family is 
in pain and agony around a person's death. But I thought it was a really striking choice to show this hospice worker he is having an incredibly emotional day and is emotionally attached to his patients he's caring for and invested in making sure that their last day on earth, their wishes are fulfilled, they get to say what they need to say. And he's the like receptacle for all of that, for all of the unfulfilled, you know, broken promises or regrets or whatever. He has to hold all that for these dying patients. And I just thought it was really just a great choice and a beautiful performance by Philip Seymour Hoffman to just be like deep, like constantly feeling too many emotions and almost like overwhelmed throughout that entire day. Cause it does feel honest to what that job would be like. If you are an open emotional person, it would just be the most intense emotions all day, every day. Um, so yeah, just really, really cool choice. And I really appreciated that character in a new way mm. upon this viewing. Yeah. There's that moment where, um, the guy on the phone says, oh, my mother had, um, I think, breast cancer, you know? And, like, you see, he's just be like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Is she okay? You know what I mean? Like, like he's a total empath. Yeah. Right. Anybody else might be like, okay, I'm sorry, but, like, that's not part of my issue right now. Here's my objective. That's what I want. But it's just, like, he's so just caring about everybody. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, everyone in this movie is amazing. Like, we didn't say that yet. We need to say that. Right. Like, everybody's yeah. just giving, like, the performance of their lives. Tom Cruise in 1999 was somehow able to tap Ooh. into 2000. 2005 Tom Cruise, which is really impressive. Um, yeah. I we're going to talk about Eyes Wide Shut for a minute. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it's also probably worth noting that, you know, a lot of uh, this was written from experience with, like, for Paul Thomas Anderson, and I believe a family member of his had also died from cancer. So, like, all of that was, mm. I think, very well-observed and feels very honest yeah i had a very close friend who had that job for a while and mm. she was pretty remarkable and that like yeah it's extremely difficult but also so rewarding to be there for people in this time where you really people need someone and i feel like yeah philip seymour hoffman embodies that so so much it's also a fun part in the making of where pta does an impersonation of philip seymour hoffman and how much unnecessary business he does in every single like take like actor <laughs> business it's pretty funny uh, but yeah i feel like that that honesty is is there and makes that whole world partridge you know set piece thing very powerful also, also, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Julianne Moore being in a scene together just makes me think of Big Lebowski, you know, and it's like the maybe the best movie ever to just like watch the actors do stuff like when they're the camera's not even like focused on them or whatever. <laughs> just like here, here are actors who are just chewing up the scenery left and right. Also, Boogie Nights. Yep. And shortly thereafter, Mission Impossible 3, again with Tom hey. Cruise and Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> right. Philip Seymour Hoffman in a very different role. Cool. <laughs> Brian, what's your lesson? Yeah, I mean, my lesson's about pacing and the power of a good scene. Um, you know, I was thinking about this like soap opera thing where you like soap operas are like we cut to this scene where two people are standing across the living room from each other and one of them just told the other one they're having an affair. And then like they stare at each other for a minute. And then we cut to another scene where it's like a mother telling a daughter telling her mother, I'm moving out. It's just like, here's the most intense thing that can happen at any given moment. And Magnolia does a lot of this where like before we can cool down from one moment, we're on to the next, like, look at this thing, look at this thing. Right. Um, and it's like, it's, it's a long movie, but it's hard to look away from, as you were saying, Michael, it's rarely boring. It's just always like, here's something, something is happening right now. Um, 
I think the only time I really get restless is in the middle of the middle hour. Um, <laughs> because the, the middle hour is literally just all of the characters are in one scene for an hour. So like Tom Cruise is in the interview, Donnie is at the bar, uh-huh. uh, Phil's on the phone, right? Everybody's just in one scene um, for an hour. But as we talked about, like, here's the moment where all of the characters are like, the tension is building. Here's the moment where they all do this thing. But it's an hour. So there, there are moments where I'm like, okay, Tom Cruise is still doing the interview and we're still checking in with this person. And I think like that's one of the few times in the movie where I start to zone out a little bit is because we've got a while before something big is going to happen. Right. But that's like, I don't know, 20 minutes of a, of a three hour movie where, where I'm like, I don't know. Uh, the rest of it is just like kind of that, the rule of come in late, get out early. Right. Where it's just like, here is the most important scene that could be happening to this person right now. Here we go. And then let's move on to this next person. You're just always riveted. You're always compelled. Um, and then on top of that, the scenes themselves are just so, so riveting, right? And I, you know, as someone who doesn't love this movie as a whole, when I'm watching Frank at his father's deathbed or Phil on the phone or some like Donnie's crazy monologues or even just Jim doing like some of his like normal cop stuff, I'm like not even watching this movie anymore. I'm just in a vacuum where the only two things that exist are me and this scene. Um, I think this is not this movie, but, you know, Daniel Plainview uh, I abandoned my child, right? Like that's maybe not only one of PTA's best examples of this, but one of the best examples in cinema of just like, I just want, I, the world doesn't exist anymore. I'm just watching this scene and like nothing else matters. So yeah, just write compelling meaty scenes and then weave them together in a way that just keeps us compelled throughout. And then you'll have just a, a movie that is always, always pulling you to the screen. Yeah, there are scenes in this movie that feel like Tarantino to me, you know, just just how Tarantino can just do like this is just a scene like right. beginning, middle and end. But <laughs> it holy is crap. Is it a scene? Yeah. yeah, it is. It is so full. It is so full. This scene. Yeah. Love your yeah description there, Brian. Also, just like being in a vacuum where all that exists is like you win the script. Like, I feel like that's like, that's it, man. Like, that's like movie making magic, you know, yeah. like that's what you want. And it's yeah, it's great. <laughs> Trisha, what's your lesson? Yeah, I was thinking this time about having characters make choices that they can't take back. And mm. this movie, I mean, that's just like basic screenwriting. Like scenes should end where something has changed. And mm. ideally it's a thing that could never revert to the way that it was, right? So it, it, it seems really basic, but the choices that people make in this are all like really big irreversible choices from scene to scene most of the time. So thinking about say Donnie's arc, um, who is probably one of the more active characters in this where he's like, we meet him. He's like, I'm going to get braces. I'm really excited about it. But then he dry, he crashes his car. You can't take that choice back. You don't, you cannot uncrash <laughs> your car. You cannot unget fired, which is the next scene that happens to him. Right. Then he gets drunk in the bar and he confesses his love to the bartender. You can't take that back either. Like what he does, his choices are what set him on this irreversible course. And then also thinking about like even the one scene where it's like he goes and steals the money and then he tries to take it back and he can't take it back because the key snaps off in the lock. Like the movie cuts off his escape routes or his ability to walk back any of his choices. And that's good screenwriting. Like 
there is no way to like bounce back or turn around for that character. And a lot of the characters are in that exact same position. You have, you know, poor Stanley, like he gets into a situation where he doesn't like stand up for himself or leap out of his chair to go to the bathroom or whatever. People keep telling him he can't go and can't go and can't go. And then, you know, he has an accident and then that choice is irreversible and it affects everything. Um, the same thing with like Melora Walters's character, Claudia, where it's like she it's to a smaller degree, but like she's playing her music. She meets Jim. She like lets him in. They're talking. Every single beat in that is something that you kind of can't walk back very easily. Right. And then she agrees to go on the date and it's like then we're at the date now. Like she tries to get out of it and she kind of even can't get out of the date very easily or elegantly. Um, again, there are these things where it's like the movie is driving the characters forward by forcing them to make, continue making choices that they kind of can't get out of. And it's great. Like <laughs> that's what drama is. And the bigger the choice, the more dramatic the movie, um, or in this case, melodramatic. Uh, but again, that's like you stack them up all on top of each other. And what you have is a movie that is gripping as hell. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking there also about, again, the Linda character, the Julianne Moore character, and why she kind of feels like an island is that, like, I feel like she doesn't have as many choices that she makes. And, you know, there's a moment where she comes back from picking up all the drugs and she's in the garage. And there's kind of this moment of like, oh, I could just sit here and could leave the car running and maybe, you know, take my life essentially. Doesn't, goes back in. And ultimately she does make that choice but it's so much later in the film like that is kind of only the the one big choice that she makes and so i think just another interesting observation that as you're saying there are other characters that are making lots of irreversible choices and some that aren't as much and just the the various tensions that come with that yeah um also because i'm curious about the linda thing i, I don't know why i'm stuck on this there was like a storyline with the kid you know that finds her and that like you know does the rap mm -hmm. that like got cut but there was like a whole subplot where that somehow connected the gym storyline the murder I presume. yeah that he yeah. discovers at the beginning right because that also never yeah. feels resolved Right. Yeah. And so there was a thing that I think was just cut partially for time and partially because performances weren't just wasn't working. But I'm really curious what that if that would have kind of completed a little like that one tangential line and made it all feel of a piece. But yeah, there are a couple different character webs that maybe only two, but two or three character webs that never connect in any way. And, right. But it feels like maybe they originally did and then they just got cut. Right. Yeah. So that'd be a little bit of an oversight. Yeah, I think by by lesson you know i love thinking about film language and just going back to the reason i fell in love with this movie originally is just how it creates new film language or does does things differently with film language how you move the camera how you edit how you block a scene how you mix the sound all those things the pta is at this point you know like famous for doing and playing around with i just love I just love it when movies do that. And so I think when studying film, I think it's cool to look at the extreme examples of that just to kind of help calibrate where you feel and where you fit and what what style seems right to you. And I think he, this is one of those far off on the side spectrums 
I encourage people to do what I did and basically just make a PTA film and film school. Just uh, copy. Yeah, just copy it and like see how fast you can push your little rented dolly in and out of things and <laughs> do some match cuts and zooms and stuff. Because um, I think when you play at the edges of what is, you know, appropriate film language, you learn things that you can take then back to wherever. And this is a great film. To, like every shot, something crazy is happening that yeah. is abnormal. Even the shots that look simple or that are like, they're doing something like it it really is remarkable. Like when they're doing the sing along and there's, I think three of the characters are in cars or two of the three characters are in In cars. In the rain, which is always great as we know. But but like even, even like the shot approaching Tom Cruise's character in the car, like you can't see him at first, but he's in the mirror and the way the light is on his face is just reveals him at the right time. Like, it's a shot that like you as the audience are participating and like looking for the character and it is like lit and the camera is placed. So it, you know, you get to have this journey of like revealing them. Same with Julianne Moore, the way she's lit in her car where you can't really see her at first and then it goes by. It just feels so crafted in this, in this way that invites you to participate. (laughs) Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's it. All that, all that, all that magic is still there from the film school days. Yeah. And the there will be blood episode. I think I talked about one of the shots they they used as like a early eye tracking test where they put like eye trackers on like audiences so they could see what parts of the frame they're watching. And it's it's a similar shot where it's kind of like pushing into a room and you think you see everybody, but then at a certain point you realize, oh, there's a third person in this in this shot in this room and then you're revealing what they're looking at and so you can see visually on the screen these little markers where people are focused on a thing but oh then there's a new thing and oh there's a new thing and so it's it's creating more interesting dynamics or you could just have a wide shot you could shoot that scene a million different ways but you can find creative ways to engage the audience and and do more with it and pta is really great at that what else have you guys been watching? Alex, what have you been watching recently? So I'm catching up with all my Oscar films and I watched uh, Pinocchio on Netflix, mm-hmm. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. And I really loved it. I mean, I love stop motion animation. You know, Coraline's one of my favorite animated films. And, you know, it's it's long and, um, you know, it's not not like a tight animated film, but it it was really profound. It was very moving and really not shy about being about death and mortality and change and kind of just life moving on. And it, it was surprisingly, yeah, deep in, in that way. And so I, I really was really happy. I watched it and really moved by it. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy it won uh, best animated feature. Nice. Cool. Okay. Brian, what about you? Uh, so way back in an early episode, one of our first 10, I think I mentioned seeing Ikiru, um, the Kurosawa film from 1952 that I loved about this older kind of bureaucratic man who finds out he's dying and then uses his final months to learn how to live life and and kind of leave one good thing behind. Um, and that was just remade as a British period drama uh, starring Bill Nighy, uh, for which he and the screenplay were both nominated for Oscars. So that's Living, uh, which just came out this past uh, past few months. Um, 
was really excited to check it out, but I was also worried because the original was so good. Um, and man, they nailed it. I, I loved it. They hit all the major beats from the original, but also it totally feels like its own thing. That's not afraid to make its own choices and just be the best version of a 2022 movie it can be. Um, but, uh, you know, there's things from the original. I'm like, I didn't really like that sequence. I'm like, oh, they changed that. And the others where it's like, man, that one shot, they kept that shot. My partner and I haven't seen the original since 2018, I think. And we're like, that shot is the same. Like, that's how striking the original is and how much this one, you know, kept to it. Um, but man, it looks and feels beautiful. The cinematography and the lighting and the production design are just immaculate, like really, really striking. The script is great. Bill Nye, of course, is amazing as always. So yeah, really highly recommended. I definitely recommend Ikiru also, but if you haven't seen it, you can absolutely watch Living as any good remake should be. It's its own movie that operates on its own rules. Uh, but yeah, one of my favorites of last year. So definitely recommend checking it out. Nice. Very cool. Okay. Trisha, what about you? So speaking of Oscar movies, I also uh, got caught up on all the Oscar nominees and I watched Women Talking, um, which I really want to recommend. It is uh, Sarah Polly uh, written, adapted by Sarah Polly, who won an Oscar uh, just recently for that adaptation um, based on a book, which is based on a real thing that happened. Uh, but it's this very contained, quiet drama um, about this uh, group of women who live in like a religious, isolated religious community. And it comes out that the women have been like systematically attacked uh, by men. It's like sort of unclear in an insider outside of their community, but um, inside for sure. I mean, definitely I mean, some. yes, but not like it's very unclear who they are. Right. Or like what their exact relationship to these women are. And they're given this ultimatum by the men of the community that the attackers are going to be restored to the community and they have to decide what to do about it. Either they can forgive them and do nothing um, or they can leave or they can stay and fight. And so the women are gather together and they just are talking about their options, these three things. Um, and there's a lot of factors at play, you know, leaving the community for them would mean like forfeiting their relig religion, essentially that they've used to shape their whole lives around. Um, and you know, it's really heavy. Um, it's really talky as you might expect based on the title. <laughs> Well, it tells you what it's it is. Also, yeah. It's also fun and like kind of funny and kind of badass at times. Like it's yeah, yeah. Like for for being heavy and talky, it's also like has these really fun beats. To yeah, it. I just want to be honest. I was really dreading going into this movie because I thought it was just going to be a drag from start to finish, and it is not. <laughs> the title is so like it's just like people will talk. Right. <laughs> women, women not just will people, talk. women yeah. will talk. Yeah. And, but I, I was just expecting it to be like nothing but a chore to watch. And it's not right. like that at all. It's actually very dynamic. It's very taut. The movie is cleverly edited too. There's like a ton of beautiful editing in it that helps you piece the story together. The characters are so well rendered and interesting. Um, and even though it is like this kind of like bottle of a movie of just this day that they're sort of deliberating of what's going on. Um, and the performances are outstanding. So, you know, it's 
Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, Judith Ivey, Ben Wishaw, and Francis McDormand. Amateurs, all of them. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> wouldn't expect anything out of them. I mean, um, I do want to watch them just sitting around and talking to me. I mean, that, 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 that sounds great. You will not be disappointed. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I really enjoyed it, and I was very happy for the Oscar win for Sarah Polly. So women talking. Awesome. Cool. Very cool. Um, well, speaking of movies that you thought was going to be a chore to watch, um, I watched The French Dispatch. Oh. Uh, and so I've spoken a little bit about my complicated relationship with Wes Anderson uh, and how there was a, a love period of like, oh, my goodness. And then kind of falling out and like, I'm like, OK, yeah, I know. Like, OK. <laughs> Uh, especially like I know climaxing with like you know Grand Budapest where everyone was like oh my god it's his best film and I was like I, I don't know that I'll ever watch another Wes Anderson film uh, but I watched The French Dispatch and it, I was delighted by it I actually watched it like twice basically or like Whoa. one and then like two-thirds times there's i don't know like i was thinking a lot about because brian i know you've talked about it and i had kind of a lot of your comments in the back of my mind and it's it is super wes anderson-y it's doing all the wes anderson things but for some reason this one struck me just right like the cinematography is gorgeous like in a way that feels more than just like this is a well-composed shot with some wacky colors like the cinematography is gorgeous. So just watching this film is visually striking and amazing. And some, for some reason it captured a little bit of that Wes Anderson thing that I kind of fell in love with, with like the life aquatic where the way the story unfolds is sort of like at first seems like, Oh, there's a random point on this piece of paper over there. And then a random point here. And are you doing all these kind of random points on this paper? But by the end you realize that like in the middle of all these points is this sort of, sort of emotional like center core that like actually kind of moved me. So I don't know. I I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. Um and I can't necessarily say that it's objectively good, but I really loved it. So Well now you're gonna be stuck watching more Wes Anderson. Movies. I know. All right. <laughs> this is how this is how they get me. Well, I mean, since you mentioned like the, the, the sort of technical beauty of it, um, I would recommend friend of the podcast, Thomas flight has a, um, a video on YouTube called the absurd intricacy of the French dispatch. Mm. Uh, and he just talks about how like so many shots, I think some he's sort of like, he's reading into maybe if that was on purpose or not, but some are very clearly like the camera is moving exactly this pace so that this thing happens in this window and that thing happens there. So it's a movie I've seen once. So I haven't really noticed a lot of this stuff you know but it definitely feels like like one where i mean like paul thomas anderson it's just someone who knows exactly what the hell they're doing in every single frame you know is always really impressive yeah and it feels like very mature this time where some some mm -hmm. of the earlier films it's like oh it's indulgent you're you're but this feels very refined and that was kind of striking to me and just the story the structure of the story is really interesting and worked so yeah it's interesting yeah. it's good yeah cool well, this has been our conversation about Magnolia. Interesting to revisit. Uh, yeah, this kind of, it, it did make me, as Alex was saying earlier, there's kind of early PTA that I was like, that's the good PTA and everything after there will be blood as well. Um, revisiting Magnolia and that changing my perspective did kind of open me up to, maybe I should go revisit some Latter-day PTA because maybe yeah. my thoughts have, would have been changed at that point. Phantom Thread. Yeah. That's my favorite Latter-day PTA. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll think about it. 
I want to say a big thank you as always to the patrons that make this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. Thank you to our editors, Donovan Bullen, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.